What's up, Beardos? You're listening to episode 126 of The Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to don't be a jerk. Don't really answer the question first. I'm not answering the question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talking about beards. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com. You can always reach us by emailing thebeardvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been eating, do some follow-up, and then move on into a news roundup to discuss a variety of stories that have piqued our interest, including a vegan author who thinks veganism will solve gun violence and the revelation that America ranks damn near dead last on a new animal cruelty index. Shocking. I know. I think a lot of people will find this shocking or surprising. Yes. (laughs) Stay tuned to find out. The answer mm-hmm. will shock you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andy, what have you been eating? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is issue just a quick correction. On the last episode, I talked about these delicious nachos I had, and I said they were from Vegan Casera, and it was Vegana Casera. And I don't know why I made that mistake, but just consider this a correction right there. Paul, I was at Vegan Street Fair this past weekend. The the almighty vegan street fair, the largest single-day free vegan event in the country. Last year, they got 30,000 people out, still waiting on the official numbers from this year. And it is just a, a massive event. Obviously, a ton of people come out. There's, I believe, over 200 vendors. So even if you wanted to, you couldn't possibly eat at every single vendor there. Now, of course, I was running the Compassion Company table. So I did not really get a chance to go out and try the food. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you do all these vegan events. You must eat all these cool vendors. I'm like, nah, I'm normally just kind of stuck behind the table <laughs> the whole time. But thankfully... Some friends took pity and brought me some delicious food. And the one I really want to highlight is Donna Jean, which is a restaurant that is down in San Diego. I had been there once before, but I had only, I went by myself, which means I don't get to try that much. You know, if I'm lucky, it's like an entree and an appetizer, maybe a dessert. But, you know, I like to go to restaurants with a few people. You could split a bunch of stuff. So I, I enjoyed it, but I knew that I wanted to try more from them. And I didn't get to try their signature dish, which was these Nashville hot shrooms, which are these breaded and fried mushrooms. And they put a little hot sauce on there. They put some pickles. It's served on this, like, toasted bread and mm, crispy fried <laughs> deliciousness, Paul. I, I feel like the the idea of what you're describing sounds delicious, but the name Nashville hot shrooms does not sound <laughs> – th- that sounds like what you would call – you know in, like, a cartoon – when you're trying to show that someone's smelly, there's those lines above them. It'd be like, like I, it wouldn't surprise me if those are called Nashville hot rooms. <laughs> oh, that's so unfair to the poor Nashville hot rooms, Paul. I think you would definitely love them. Uh, I'm sure that I would. I'm sure that I would. And the other thing that I had from Donna Jean was some pizza. The variety I had was called the Thunderkiss 65. And here's the description. White wine, garlic cream, mozzarella, ricotta, Bloomsdale spinach, pistachios, preserved lemon vinegar, and bourbon-smoked black pepper. And it was a very interesting combo. 
I did not pick this out for myself. I don't know if it would have been the one that I picked out, but I have to say I was so glad that I did because this pizza was amazing. I love that they weren't using Dea cheese. It was a house-made cheese. And I liked that it was a cashew cheese, but it didn't taste like cashews. The the lemon preserve vinegar and like the bourbon smoked black pepper, those were just kind of like notes in the background. So it all worked together super well. And I got to eat that on my drive across country. Lovely. So that was Vegan Street Fair. And of course, got to meet some amazing beardos. And don't want to give shout outs to the returning beardos, take up too much time, but a few people brought by some goodies. So thank you very much. You know who you are. And the new beardos that I got to meet were Saul, Sergio, Ian, Cecilia, Jared, Monique, and Nicole. And Nicole runs Coley Soaps and brought by two bars. So, Paul, I got a bar of soap for you the next time I see you. Got a bar of soap with my name on it. <laughs> yes, indeed. And also a uh, huge thank you to uh, Emmanuel and Ari, who are also Beardos, and they are the two people that were helping me at the table that day, and they were absolutely wonderful. So special Beardo shout-out to them. Yeah. And if you want to hear more about Vegan Street Fair, we actually interviewed Jessica Shea, who is the founder and the mastermind behind the entire event back in episode 83, which was, Should Vegans Advocate That People Eat Cows Instead of Chickens? Which was a a pretty fruitful conversation, if I remember correctly, Paul. Yeah. And then the one last place that I do want to mention is I got to make a quick stop in Salt Lake City, and I opened up the old Happy Cow, and I saw a place I had not seen before called Seasoned Plant-Based Bistro, and they kind of call it sort of upscale comfort food. And I got a few things there, but the, the one menu item that just blew me away was their ravioli, their hand-cut ravioli. And it's uh, they make their own pasta and everything. So it's fresh in-house ravioli stuffed with butternut squash puree, brown butter consomme with savory fennel sausage, and topped with herbs. This is, mm. honestly, Paul, this is one of the best things I've eaten in a very long time. I was... I was not expecting to love it as much as I did, but especially the brown butter consomme, like really tied it all together. It was warm. It was comforting. The flavor was delicious. There was a lot of depth to the flavor. Uh, It was sad when it was over. So I I definitely would put Seasons Plant-Based Bistro on my must visit if you ever go to Salt Lake City, which is a town that I really love. You you really need to be a professional food critic, Andy. (laughs) I've never heard someone describe food with so much emotion. <laughs> what can I say, Paul? It made me angry. It made me sad. I, I feel the way about food the way that you feel about small dogs. <laughs> so you cry every time that you eat <laughs> Literally every time. And yes, Paul is saying that he cries whenever he eats a small dog. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, so, Paul. Yes, Andy. What went in that beautiful mouth of yours this week? So it in between all of the raw tofu that I ate. Can I just say, can I just say, if yeah. there is anyone that's listening that is not friends with Paul on Instagram, you need to get on it because Paul <laughs> is putting out some solid gold content regarding <laughs> recipes that you can make with raw tofu. And the only reason I'm not posting this on the on our Bearded Vegans Instagram is because I feel like people will stop listening to the podcast <laughs> if we posted it on there. <laughs> But but between all the raw tofu, actually just today, this happened today, I, I've been stopping at Dottie's Donuts, which is a place we've talked about before uh, on a few occasions. I've been stopping there frequently just to get a, a coffee, but today their specialty donut, it was a peanut butter French toast crunch donut. 
It was a filled donut. It had like the French toast crunch kind of on the top and then filled with like a peanut butter buttercream. It was so good. Paul, you're making and- me emotional over here. <laughs> <laughs> and and I was not I was not planning on getting a donut. The the person behind there said it was one of the best donuts they've ever had, so I had to get it and it was quite good. So shout out to Dottie's. You're really doing it up over there at Dottie's. And and one other thing I want to say, actually, I went to a cool event at Lush yesterday, the like bath and body product store. They had an event where they were showing you how to like recycle all your old Lush containers and turn them into planters. And so they like gave you your own planter thing. And so I went in there and the person that helped me out as they were helping me make my planter, they just casually said, hey, I like your podcast a lot. And I said... Oh, thank you. I'm not sure how this person knew who I was or recognized me, but but thank you so much for listening to the podcast. They I probably just it. say that to anyone who's vegan and has a beard, and they're just hoping that they'll get it right sometime. <laughs> that's that's probably it. <laughs> that is it. All right. Well, that's it for the food talk. Let's do some follow up. We got a we got a couple items for follow up. The first one that I, I do want to mention is that. When Paul and I were looking for news a couple of weeks ago, we noticed that there was a couple announcements that there's going to be this this big one-night-only screening of a documentary called Eating You Alive. And I said, oh, that sounds exactly like what we do on the show. We love reviewing documentaries. Let's put that in the calendar. And then I thought, wait a second. I'm pretty sure we saw this documentary like years ago. <laughs> and, Paul, these these health documentaries just blend together at this point. I feel like whenever you and I have a conversation, we're like, is that the one that had this guy? Is that, is that the one with Penn Jillette? Is that, the, they just, <laughs> I can't remember anything about these documentaries. We've seen so many of them. So I actually had to go through and do a search of our episodes. And I found out, yes, indeed, episode 68, we did a review of eating you alive and the film came out in 2016. Hmm. hmm. Yeah. So, so very curious. Did a little digging, and I was like, why is this getting this one-night-only thing? Are they just thinking what the health has caused this this huge surge of interest in plant-based eating documentaries? They're trying to capitalize on that. What's going on? And it turns out that there was a, a character in the film had a very tragic thing happen, and they had to to reshoot a lot of the film. So we're not entirely sure how different it is. I can't imagine that the overall narrative is all that different. But for those of you that are going to see this one night only screening, which is April 5th. So if you're listening to this the day it comes out, that's tomorrow. Uh, and you're looking for a little commentary afterwards, go check out episode 68. And then let us know what's changed if we are totally wrong on our opinion because of these changes. I'd be really curious to hear from anyone that does that. Yeah, definitely. And and let us know if it's so different that it's maybe worth giving another giving another watch. But but like you said, Andy, much like a, a fine oilless kale smoothie, these do <laughs> they do tend to blend together. <laughs> I give you one gold star for that joke. Thank Paul. you. I appreciate it. So what's this other piece of follow up that we have? Well, you know, we were talking about that Veganuary episode, and we did a little little bit of follow-up talking about... This is follow-up to follow-up, Paul. <laughs> follow-up squared. And we were talking about the surveys they sent to people, and we were wondering if the amount of people they got was actually statistically significant, and we were calling into question their findings. And uh, you and I are no statisticians. 
We are is not. Is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> I believe it is. All right. Nailed it. And we said, hey, listeners out there, if anyone wants to help us make sense of these numbers, please do. And we got a, a wonderful email from Vanessa Kay that we thought we would read on the air to illuminate some of those numbers a little bit. So Vanessa says... Amateur statistician checking in. You asked on the episode a couple weeks back about the Veganuary survey if there is a formula to use for determining an appropriate sample size. You're thinking of the Cochrane formula, which I'm not going to try to figure out how to type in an email, but here's a good write-up of it here, and we'll include that link. If you assume that maybe 60% of Veganuary participants are going to remain vegan afterward, then according to the Cochrane formula... You only need a sample size of 363 to get a cool 95% confidence interval with a 5% margin of error. If you want to go wild and have a 99% confidence interval, then you would need a sample size of 620. It looks like with their sample size of nearly 9,000 people, they would have about a 1% margin of error, as in the population of 23,000 omnivores who participated in Veganuary, you can say with 99% confidence that the number who intend to stay vegan is between 66 and 68%. Doesn't account for the sampling bias, error, attrition, or for the translation of intention to action. So they should be discussing that and trying to determine what percentage of people actually complete the Veganuary challenge through to the data that they send out the survey. Since you asked about trials with like 5 to 50 participants, we could use this as an example. What if they did this same survey, but with only 10 respondents? In that case, they could say with about 95% confidence that the number who intend to stay vegan is between 36 and 108%, which would have been a big waste of time. So thank you, Vanessa, for enlightening us on this. This definitely, I, I think, Andy, what I, the conclusion that I drew from this with a 99% confidence is that you don't need as much as big of a sample size to be confident in your results as I think we thought we thought previously. Is that fair to say? It seems like it. It seems like it. But I do think that the, the thing that we talked about and, and Vanessa reinforces here is sort of the, the bias of those who would be likely to respond, which I already mentioned once before in this episode. And I would be curious to see how they account for that. True. True. This is true. Because, like, on, honestly, in my head, I'm like 100% of the people that didn't respond – are not going vegan. I don't I don't think so. Which is probably not true, which is probably not true, but I don't think it's as good of a rate as what they had. And then the other thing that we didn't get to the bottom of here is that they only sent it out to half of the people that did it. Yeah. So again, so so of course half the people that didn't get it, I don't think 100% of them didn't go vegan, but I don't know, it just it feels weird they didn't send it to everybody. I don't know, there could be other reasons, but who knows? Yeah, I'm sure it could be budgeting. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? Whatever it is. Begin, you already knows. That's who knows. <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you for that email, Vanessa. And hopefully that illuminated the situation for, for some of the listeners as it did for us. Yeah. And, Paul, hopefully you really enjoyed reading so many numbers. Oh, yeah. Although stats, <laughs> not my not my area of expertise. Still, still a applied branch of mathematics. So I'm into it. All right. Our last little bit of follow-up here. Now, we talked pretty extensively about the lineup at the Animal Rights Conference, the, the big one that's put on by Farm every year. We talked a lot about that in our episode that we did with Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack. 
where we talked all about AR Me Too and Time's Up AR. And within that discussion, we talked a little bit about whether or not the the responsibility for sort of curating the speakers falls on the conference organizers or if it would be a good move for a lot of the white men who typically speak at these things to sort of self-withdraw in sort of support of everything that's going on right now. And then we saw the Alex Hershaft, who we who we knew had a lot of issues, who was basically in charge of the whole conference. He was the one chair for the conference that he was stepping down and that Don Moncrief and Jen Riley were going to take his place. And we said, hey, we're cautiously optimistic about the shape of this conference now. And we were like, let's just wait and see who the speakers are. And they just sent out an announcement that has the sort of the initial round of speakers. So this isn't every single speaker, but it's about 120 speakers already announced. And if last year's any indication, there's probably only going to be another 20 or so that will eventually be announced. So it's still a pretty good gauge of, of what's going on. And just want to talk about it a little bit. So first I'll say numbers and percentages are not the only thing to gauge here. I, I don't want it to fall into, oh, this many white guys are doing it and we need to fill this quota and tokenize and all that stuff. But I do think there is some value in sort of looking at the overall percentages just to sort of see how things have changed since for the previous year. And so last year, the 2017 lineup, there's about 100 and there was 139 speakers. For my count, 54 of them were white men. And in 2018, so far, of the 119 announced, only 27 are white men. So it's definitely a pretty drastic reduction. And it looks like they also have included a few people that I haven't seen speak at the conference before. I think this might be their first year, which perhaps indicates they actually reached out to people to speak because previously the conference was only people had to apply to speak. And obviously that created barriers for a lot of people in terms of being able to afford the travel and hotel and all these things. But um, Breeze Harper and AFCO are speaking this year and some other notable speakers, Lauren Ornelas, Brenda Sanders, Michelle Carrera, and Patrice Jones. To me, it feels like it's starting to look up. Any, any inclinations there, Paul? No, it definitely seems like a, it definitely seems like a slight improvement from, from last year. Although I will say this because I was surprised when you said that it was only 54 out of the 139 for last year because I think even though it was less than 50% white men last year, I feel like they're the ones that got the most prominent spots as well. So they were the most visible ones anyways. So so like that number surprised me from last year. So I'm more hopeful about it this year. But I think like you were kind of alluding to, Andy, it's not just about the numbers necessarily, but then how they choose to to put the program on as well. But I'm cautiously optimistic. Yeah, I'll be really interested to see how things shape up this year. And you're, you're definitely right. It's like, well, who is going to get the platform at these plenary sessions you know, a lot of those speaking positions go to the sponsors and, and the people are kind of paying their way into getting these high profile sessions where they're speaking to the entire conference and not just, you know, 100 people in a small room in a side session. So, yeah, we'll see and we'll see what kind of sort of messages get highlighted and it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. Yeah. And um, definitely, you know, kind of giving a little bit of side eye. Cause it seems like there's definitely a few white men that, that always speak and could hold back this year at least. 
and they still chose to to apply to speak and i feel like they're kind of aware of this effort to to maybe say hey it's time for us to step down for a little bit and so i don't know that was like a little disappointing to see certain names on there i think the the only one though that like really stood out upon the initial announcement was alex hershaft was listed as a speaker and again there is a lot of issues with him as the the conference organizer so it felt weird that he was included there and i was like eh, it's probably a part of his final deal like i'll get to speak one more year or something and then when i was refreshing it to 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 go over and look for the specific names i noticed that he was missing so i think that he hmm. has been removed as a speaker which is which is pretty interesting to me. What if they like put his name back in the day before of the conference? Let's <laughs> just sneak it in there. Uh, I think people will be pretty upset about that. <laughs> pretty upset. I, I, I like honestly. I wonder if he'll even be there, just like as a person hanging out or not. I f- feel like he will be, but I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, it seems like it might be a tense year at the Animal Rights Conference. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we'll we'll put a link to uh, this the current speaker lineup if everyone wants to check it out in the show notes over at theoldbeardvegans.com. dot com. And with that said, it's time to do the news, Paul. We got uh, we're doing a, a bit of a roundup. No main discussion, but we had a couple stories that really piqued our interest that we'll have some some shorter discussions on. And I'm looking forward to talking about a few of these some really interesting things and. The first one is this uh, wild animal ban in UK circuses. So tell us all about it. So, Andy, this is one that I've been watching pretty closely for the last few weeks, and I've been wanting to include it in the news stories, in, in our news section as it's been developing. But you've you've said, no, you've vetoed it a few times, and you've said, wait, Paul, wait, wait, for, wait till this develops further. And <laughs> I can wait no further, Andy. So we're going to talk about it. But I got a, a few different articles related to it because it's it's an interesting progression and in your defense, Andy, I'm glad that we waited to, to see this as a whole <laughs> as a as a whole piece rather than these individual stories. So the, the first article came out February 17th. It's from adinternational.org titled UK Government to Ban Wild Animal Circuses by 2020. And I'm just going to read a, a little snippet from it. Animal Defenders International, or ADI, congratulates the UK government on committing to ban the use of wild animals in traveling circuses in England by January 2020. It follows a decade of promises by the UK government and more than 20 years of investigations and campaigning by ADI. The announcement was made in a post-implementation review of the Welfare of Wild Animals in Traveling Circuses in England, Regulations 2020, introduced as an interim measure ahead of a ban. The review states, the current regulations expire on January 19th, 2020. The government does not intend to renew the regulations as it intends to ensure that a legislative ban is introduced by them. The regulations will then be allowed to expire. And the article also, also uh, worth mentioning, the article also notes how bans have been promised by the UK government since 2006, and they've never followed through on them. Curious, curious, curious. So fast forward to March 6th. An article from nwemail.co.uk, call to ban wild animals in traveling circuses moves one step closer. The ban was introduced to Parliament today by Copeland MP Trudy Harrison. And so this is interesting because the wording of the first article from February 17th was like, the government is going to ban this. Like they said that they're going to ban this. But then this article makes it a little clear that it was not ever 
officially banned. It was just something that they said, hey, we're going to put this forward. And on March 6th, basically, the Trudy Harrison put it forward and it was kind of said, yes, we will vote on this. But we are not going to vote on it until March 16th. Like it's it's now it says the bill will now be prepared for a second reading on March 16th. And Paul, so the initial way that we would would have covered this was this is happening. And, and all of the articles that we were looking at were saying this is definitely happening. The government is essentially promising that they're going to pass this. And the reason I was hesitant was because, well, the, the vote actually hasn't happened yet. So it seems like it's a done deal. People are reporting on it as if it's a done deal. But s- something in my gut said, <laughs> let's hold off until this vote actually happens. Yeah, yeah. And and also interesting to note that I found a couple other articles just talking about exactly, you know, like how many animals this would affect. And there's actually in the UK, there's only two circuses that have wild animal licenses who would be affected by this ban. And between those two circuses, they have 19 animals between them. And of course I'd rather have, I'd rather have zero animals used in circuses than 19 animals, but it's still, I was, I was surprised at how low that number was. I I guess it makes sense because there aren't that many traveling circuses and each circus doesn't have that many animals, but I expected the number to be in like the hundreds or something like that but it's only 19 animals. Yeah, I guess I, I forget that the UK is not that big. <laughs> yeah, You exactly. know, it's like how many circuses could they possibly uphold? And uh, didn't you tell me that that activists had been working on this for decades? 20, 20, well, specifically the ADI, who was referenced in the first article, the Animal Defenders International, they've been working on this, they said, for 20 years. Now, I will say I perused their website and this is not the only thing that they work on. So it's yeah. it's not like they've been working 20 years to save 19 animals. They work on a, a plethora of other animal issues. Uh, so I was, but, but like you, like I could sense it in you, Andy, I was also a little <laughs> bit skeptical about that first. I was like, Oh, that's a lot of, that's a lot of work to put in for, <laughs> for 20 animals. It is. But, uh, but also uh, part of me sees also sort of an immense value in, animals being withdrawn from such a public spectacle like from i mean from like a symbolic standpoint you know it's not like you're saving like 10 or 19 cows from being turned into hamburgers that like no one really thinks about the cows and no one really sees the cows it's this sort of public show and saying like animals are not ours to be used for entertainment so i wonder if sort of the visibility of this thing is sort of outweighs the fact that it's like, oh, wow, a lot of effort was spent on saving 19 animals. And again, I don't want to sound callous. Obviously, we're we're glad that these animals are going to get out of this place of abuse for sure. But I, I do think that sort of being able to claim, it's like a big victory to claim, oh, we've banned wild animals in a circus. You know, you, you're getting like a lot of mileage out of the, the news that can be generated from 19 animals being saved. Yeah. Very single issue campaign of you, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I get what you're saying. There's definitely it's it certainly has a different feel of saving 19 animals and ending circus animal exploitation versus saving 19 cows, but the continuation of people eating beef. Yeah, it, it is definitely different. So fast forward 13 days to March 19th, and I've. I had Andy a lot of trouble finding finding this. I don't even remember how this showed up. I think 
the 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 stars were aligned and this article just came into my peripheral vision somehow because i could find maybe one other article that referenced this and they were all about specifically about ricky gervais who we'll talk about how he even knows but this article came out on onegreenplanet.org that says ricky gervais speaks out about ban on wild animal circus acts in the uk and I don't really care about Ricky Gervais, but the important thing about this article is this line right here. This vocal support comes after a bill to end wild animal circus acts in England was blocked by a single vote on March 16th. This bill will be brought forward again on April 27th. So what this is basically saying is that, yes, the bill went to vote on March 16th, like the previous article said, but it was blocked by a a single vote. A single person and that's a real bummer and i'm but but it is it is so bizarre to me that i could not find any other articles save maybe one other article referencing this but only referencing it in saying what this article was saying which was like oh ricky gervais is speaking out about this thing so i don't know how he found out about it maybe he works with like the adi or someone that that is like has closer connections to this whole thing, but it definitely feels like both in the vegan media and the non-vegan media, this just kind of got brushed over. Like I imagine that if it passed, then the vegan media would have been all over it. And I, and I think I sense that a lot of the vegan media might not want to cover it because they were so gung ho about celebrating this victory like a month ago and and it didn't really come to fruition. Yeah, and again, I feel like I talk about this all the time, but I, f- I think that sort of vegan media and vegans in general are so quick to to claim victories and claim stories as their own. And even the the other article that we're not linking to, but the one that you mentioned, that's just sort of saying Ricky Gervais is speaking out about this. It's it's almost like burying the lead that this this thing didn't pass, but instead they're just trying to paint Ricky Gervais as this animal friendly person this animal activist person. And so, so that's the headline as opposed to the fact that this thing didn't actually pass. Yeah, no, actually, Andy, that's a really good point. I didn't think about that, that they're only using this article because they can spin it as one of those, look at this celebrity that's backing vegan, this vegan agenda. (laughs) You know, it's funny at vegan street fair, there was someone dressed up as, as Elmo and, uh, me and Emmanuel and Ari were joking about like veg news to take a picture of that and be like Sesame Street goes vegan. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's good. That's good. Yeah, it definitely. It it feels like the only reason that this got any attention was because Ricky Gervais spoke out about it, and it feels like it'd be the kind of thing that they news outlets would want to publicize to get more public support behind the thing to make sure it passes whenever it comes back up again on April twenty seventh. So it's just weird, but I think you're right that people might be sort of embarrassed to say that they reported saying that it was going to happen and then it didn't happen. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And I think that is kind of what the ADI is doing. Like the the links that I saw, the, those two links that I saw that were talking about the Ricky Gervais thing were basically just saying Ricky Gervais is speaking out about this. Here's here's a link that I, I believe it was the ADI that put out that says, like, here's how you can contact your your the person that you would contact who I, I yeah. not not senator, but you know the the, the UK equivalent <laughs> lawmaker. So I think that's all we really have to say about that. It it is I don't know. I just thought it was worth bringing up just because it's an 
interesting story. I mean, it, it, it came close to a ban and it's still possible that it's going to be passed through. But also just it's interesting how the vegan media chose to represent this or chose not to represent it. So, yeah, anything's possible. Anything's possible. <laughs> so, Andy, I enjoyed this next one. Speaking of all things UK. Yeah, this is a pretty interesting video. It actually came out on March 7th, so we've been sitting on it for a little while. But Greenpeace is finally addressing animal agriculture. And I don't know if this is the first time that they've done anything. But as far as I know, this is like the first major publicity stunt that they've pulled to sort of promote the fact that animal agriculture is destroying the planet. So we'll put a link to this video in the show notes if you want to watch it. Yeah, and I actually, I was able to to pull out the audio from it. So so take a listen, take a listen to it. This is organ! Industrial meat is making the people on the planet sick. It's destroying our forests. Polluting our water. Causing climate change. And being mean to animals. We need to do something quick. I'll trust the team to sort this mess. Team plant. The grown-ups aren't stepping up. The world needs you now. We need to fix it. Got it. So, Paul, this video, you know, featuring these these young children. Adorable accents. Adorable. with adorable accents in adorable costumes mm-hmm. uh, is uh it's quite a charming video. What did you what did you think of this? Have we been like waiting for Greenpeace to turn their attention to animal agriculture and do you think this was a, a worthy endeavor on their part? So, here's here's the thing, Andy. I know what you're going to say because you have it written in the in the notes underneath <laughs> here. I know that you're going to say and I agree with you that it certainly they they make sure because I watched it a couple times. They make sure to only say industrial agriculture and industrial farming. They never say we need to decrease. We need to like stop eating animals. They they specifically say we need to stop. You know, like using industrial agriculture. So they are definitely targeting like the big businesses. And, and I think also there's one, there's the, the, there's the moment where they're putting like the people's tweets and stuff. And one person's tweet says like, we need to start eating from local farms instead of big farms and stuff like that. So I do agree with what you are going to say, Andy. And that's, <laughs> it certainly seems to be pushing. It seems to be pushing just eat less meat or eat quote, humanely raised local meat that that sort of thing organic meat whatever however i'll say this the imagery and some of the other things they say it's very plant heavy like isn't the it, the team is called they're like team plant or something like that something like that it's, so it's it's definitely they're pushing even though it's not explicitly what they're saying they seem to be pushing like you need to eat plant-based or you need to eat vegan to do this they just never come out and say that well what they (laughs) what they do come out and say is you need to eat less meat they do but but then they also say that one thing where they're like it's causing it's causing harm or it's being mean to the animals yeah let me i wrote that line down so the the specifically the term they use is is industrial meat Mm -hmm. Uh, i don't think they even say agriculture they say industrial meat and they say one of the children says 
Industrial meat is making our planet sick, destroying our forests, polluting our water, causing global warming, and being mean to animals. Aww. So, I, I mean, I appreciate that they included that aspect of it, that it wasn't just the environmental aspect. Because I think, you know, being Greenpeace, that could easily be the only thing that they talk about. So, I'm glad that they threw that in there. But, yeah, I, I will say the thing that you think I'm going to say, Paul, which is... <laughs> It's still a bummer because it places all the blame strictly on industrial meat. And it doesn't talk about the issue of, you know, that it's inherently wrong to harm animals. Well, what if they're trying, what if their master plan is they're trying to do a bait and switch where they're trying to get people to stop eating, you know, like industrial, industrially raised animals but then as soon as people agree to that, they're like, oh, by the way, here's the quote from Cowspiracy that says it's not even possible to eat, to, to raise all the animals that we would need to raise on local farms. So guess you should just stop eating meat altogether. What if that's yeah, the plan? It could be. And I'm sure that this is a foot in the door thing. And they know that this is going to be a way more palatable message. People here, I can eat less meat. Oh, that's okay. I can eat less meat, you know? And that, that seems doable. That doesn't seem like I could never eat meat ever again. You know, so, so, so I get why they're using the messaging, but I feel like it is my job to point out why I don't love their messaging. I think, though, that it was, in terms of feet in the door, it was, that door was cracked, it's cracked open pretty wide, I think. It's, I think it's, that door is ready for people to walk into the, the vegan room. Uh -huh. in this metaphor because i like i think just from like the imagery that they were showing and and when they show when it shows them you know it's like when it shows them in the 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 meat factory and they're like this is bad and then it shows them cooking and it's clearly there's not meat in the dish that they're eating and they're like hmm this is good like i feel like they're they're subliminally pushing veganism even though on the surface that's not what they're saying maybe Maybe, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm glad that they're doing this instead of some of the other campaigns that they do, but I don't know. It, it's just, I feel like that's the, sort of the trap that we're going to fall into. The more we sort of follow the environmental route is that a lot of people just are going to push the blame onto factory farms, industrial agriculture, and not the true core, which is our exploitation of animals, period. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Andy. I know that you kind of think it's baloney, but <laughs> good news for you, because lawmakers want to ban baloney from New York City public schools. That's right. Flawless transition on my part. <laughs> this next article I got coming to us from NewYorkPost.com. Lawmakers want to ban baloney from New York City public schools. This is pretty cool. Lawmakers want to ban bologna and other processed meats from being served in New York City public schools. City council members introduced what is being dubbed as the ban the bologna resolution at the request of Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, who has switched to a plant-based diet to manage his diabetic condition. Side note, Andy, did you know that Brooklyn has a president? Because I did not. <laughs> I had to look it up on Wikipedia. I did not know, but I feel like Droopy Dog would love everything about this. <laughs> we cannot continue feeding our children substances that are scientifically proven to increase their chances of cancer later in life, Adams said. And the, the article goes on to actually mention three other council members 
that also eliminated meat from their diets. And then it says towards the end, it says Mayor de Blasio's office is weighing the proposal And a spokeswoman for Mayor de Blasio said, This administration is committed to providing all our students with free, healthy, and nutritious meals. We launched the Meatless Monday program and are reviewing this proposal. I'm sad you didn't do that in your de Blasio impression. But it wasn't him that said that. It was... (laughs) Yeah, but it's his representative. (laughs) Who also talks like this. (laughs) Mayor de Blasio... Meatless Mondays. Have you ever heard Mayor de Blasio speak? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's just what I imagine he sounds like. <laughs> this is the old New York mayor voice. <laughs> yeah. No, it's well, it's a combination of that he's a New York mayor and his last name is de Blasio. <laughs> what <does> that mean? <laughs> I don't know. It's just a name that I. It's a name that I want to say like that. <laughs> gotcha. But but re- refocusing. I think that this is pretty cool. I think it's cool that there are four, you know, members uh, that are like policy creating members that are either completely vegan or meatless uh, in in reference to what this article says. So uh, like we've talked in the past about how, you know, it's like we need to be doing the advocacy on the interpersonal level, but there also needs to be people attacking it from, you know, like the political level and with the laws. And I, I think that's what we're seeing with this article. So I think that that's pretty cool. Now, now I guess, Andy. <laughs> you heard my big inhale as I was about <laughs> <Yeah>. to talk. <laughs> Are you skeptical about the, like the, the health focus of this? Well, here's my first question, Paul. I couldn't, I I scanned this article thoroughly. I couldn't find any indication if this meant all meat or if this just meant pepperoni and hot dog, you know, it it seemed to exclude a very specific type of meat or, you know, a a genus of meat. (laughs) You know, it it didn't say all meat. Like I'm sure that just some, some chicken breast seems like it would be fine under these guidelines. So I think that's my first bit of skepticism. But yeah, my second one is, this is just from a health standpoint. So what if all of a sudden some study comes out that says, oh, this stuff actually is good for you or it's not as bad for you? It's it's essentially implying, well, it's okay to harm animals if we find out that it's good for us to to do so. Yes, to your first point, it says bologna and other processed meats. So I imagine that's that does not refer to, you know, chicken or turkey or maybe maybe even beef either. I mean, it depends because they said like sloppy joes and that's typically like ground beef, right? Ground yeah. cow, ground cow flesh. And and obviously like turkey slices would probably be considered highly processed, but again, something like a chicken's breast would just I don't think would would qualify for that. I think people would argue that that's okay or that some salmon's okay. I don't think they're giving salmon to people in public schools, but I think certain animal products would slip by, and obviously this doesn't include anything about dairy and eggs or anything like that, but hey, I'll accept this as a, f- a foot in the door. <laughs> a lot of feet today. Andy, All nice right, Paul. L- let me say this. Anyone that's not vegan, stop listening for a second. Andy, do you think that they're just doing this as a way to get this ban because they know that it will pass? They know that parents and teachers and community members care.
care about students' health, so they know that they're going to be able to get this, and they're going to try to keep edging it on until it's like either completely meatless or maybe even completely vegan. You know, Paul, I think that that is potentially a, a strong possibility. All right, I just they did the they did the meatless Monday, which is cool. They're banning now certain types of meat. Every day, it seems like, you know, it's like the the pool of non-vegan food to eat is just slowly shrinking, you know? And and I think that maybe that's what their plan is, is that they know they're not going to be able to ban it outright. So they're just going to slowly shrink it. And I would even say not that slowly. Like if, if this goes through, if this goes through, Meatless Mondays was only, was within, you know, two years, I believe. It's like they're progressing pretty quickly i think in terms of how these policies how long they usually take usually it's like this policy went into effect in in 2015 and it and it won't actually you won't see the results until 2020 or something like that yeah and i do also think that there's a a big benefit to introducing young people to meat-free foods even if it's not vegan food at least vegetarian food early on so it doesn't seem like such a, a weird scary thing to them it's it becomes very normalized they're eating it all their classmates are eating it and it's just sort of like a normal thing to do yeah. so i do think that that is sort of an added bonus that comes along with all this as well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and maybe you know depending depending on how they choose to i'm assuming to replace whatever the meat options are with the non-meat options maybe it will give opportunities for someone like a garden or something to to grow as a business yeah yeah that could be a really good contract for someone yeah capitalism <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah so i think this is a nice i think again again let's not celebrate this let's not uh uk circus this too early and celebrate it because it <laughs> it's lawmakers want to ban baloney and hopefully, hopefully this will pass. That's going to be our new term for celebrating something prematurely. <laughs> well, it's not UK circuses. <laughs> yeah. And, and I had this other story just to, I'm going to tag this on real quick. It was from veg news. Just a story that says Cory Booker loses snowball fight, buys winner vegan pizza. And I just, I just thought it was a nice story. Is this another, is this uh, are they Donald Glovering this story though? N- well, no, because Cory Booker, I believe, is he's maybe I think he's vegan. I think he's, he's vegan. Oh, he's yeah. vegan. He's vegan. Yeah, yeah. he well, he like I, he's like I don't know Kendra from from the vegan shop ups in New Jersey gets pictures with him all the time. Nice. And he was at the vegan food and drink festival on Randall's Island. I passed by him oh, and uh, couldn't get him on the show though. We couldn't Cory <sighs> book him on the show. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, the thing about this is it just says that like they there's this <laughs> Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton-esque face-off that the <laughs> him and uh Arizona Senator Jeff Flake, great name, faced off against each other and Cory Booker lost 2 to 3 and the loser had to buy pizza for the the winner's staff and he just said I neglected to tell him though that I am definitely sending a vegan pizza or two. So I don't think he sent all vegan pizza. I don't. I agree with that. So what is there to celebrate here? It seems like they're making something out of nothing. It's I, I, I certainly don't think it's no banning baloney, but I think that the reason that I wanted to include this was it's nice that there are these 
political figures that are that are vegan or don't eat meat or vegetarian or whatever and that they are starting to push those agendas because it it's one thing if they're vegan or vegetarian and that's just they're like oh this is a personal choice for me and and it doesn't affect my political realm at all but it seems like from these two articles it's like they're willing to to push that agenda for the banning baloney. Like literally that's policy. And then even for the Cory Booker thing, it's like he's throwing in this little, you know, this little vegan jab here or there, but that's, I, I think it's still something, but it's almost like it's a punishment. Like you want pizza, but it's vegan pizza. Well, I don't know if that's, I, I think it depends on the tone that he used to say that. Yeah, yeah. How many winky faces he used in the <laughs> <Yeah>. test about it? <laughs> How many winky emoticons he used, emojis. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. We don't need to dwell on that, but I, I thought it was a nice, it was a fun story. Do you pizza. think Booker could introduce a nationwide baloney ban? It could be called the Booker Baloney Ban? The Booker Baloney Ban. Triple B. Triple B. Booker Baloney Ban. <laughs> All right, Andy. All right, before we move on into these last two stories, which I think are going to be the most interesting for us to talk about, we have to thank our wonderful supporters. And we've got some new Patreon donors that came in since last episode. So a huge, huge thank you to Jandra L. Kelsey. Wilhelm B. Great name. Darcy C. Yeah, so thank you very much. All those people chose to support us via our Patreon, a small recurring monthly donation. And we also got some PayPal donations coming in. So thank you very much to Michael M. for the one-time PayPal donation. Yes, thank you. And then a huge, 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 mega huge thank you to Emmanuel for a very, very generous in-person donation at Vegan Street Fair. That was very kind of you. So thank you very much. If you want to get in on the action, all you got to do is go to thebeardedvegans.com slash beardo, and that'll give you options for the PayPal or the Patreon. And doing so can get you some bonus content. We got two and a half bonus episodes up in there already. You could get early access to episodes, and of course, you'll get a shout out on the show. You could get a button and sticker. So uh, we greatly appreciate everyone that did that for us. Yeah, April April's coming up. <laughs> Actually, when you're listening to us, April is here. So that means our next bonus Patreon episode will be coming out shortly in a week or two. We got, we got to get on that, Andy. <laughs> more more like two. Hopefully more like two, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Andy, lead us through this next one. All right. So this this falls into the no person's land that is neither news nor follow-up, but I thought it would be really interesting for us to talk about it because I think it's It's a prevalent attitude within this movement. So this is about a Facebook slash Instagram post that was made by a specific vegan author. And I don't want to use their name because I don't think it's about this one person. It's about, again, these these larger attitudes. And this person attended Vegan Street Fair. And Vegan Street Fair actually happened the day after the March for Our Lives, which was this sort of response to the school shootings and gun violence that's going on right now and had a, a massive reach all around the United States. And so I'm just going to read this post right now. Veganism is the most, and the is all capitalized, most important, immediately effective, furthest reaching, quote, march for our lives, movement of our time, period. That's all caps as well. 
I'm here at Vegan Street Fair amongst an enormous, unprecedented crowd of my buds. Just a few of so many pictured here. And this sort of this post accompanied uh, five or six photos, a little collage there, who are leading the way to a truly evolutionary revolution in consciousness and planetary well-being. No legislation, no waiting period, no presidents required. Get on board. So. I, I want to talk about another comment that this author made in, in response to people sort of not loving this post. But first, let's just talk about this post. Paul, what are your initial impressions of this? We've talked about how vegan advocates sometimes do this. It's like a blatant co-opting of another movement. I I, I feel like I feel like when this author puts says it's the fur this is the veganism is the furthest reaching quote march for our lives it's almost it's almost like saying it it's like condescending it's like saying the actual march for our lives is not as important it's not as effective it's not it's missing what we should be talking about so i i got the impression that it's very demeaning um in in a, you know in addition to co-opting it it's also demeaning it yeah, yeah, it's kind of like saying this is the real march for our lives. Why can't vegans just come up with our own names for things? <laughs> yeah, and and it's like I I get it. You know, we see something getting a lot of media attention and we're like how can we get that attention towards the animals? And it seems like a really quick shortcut to doing so. And and we see this all the time, we, you know, even things like with the Black Lives Matter movement and then vegans sort of saying all lives matter or fish lives matter or, you know, whatever it might be. I saw black cats matter, you know, things like that. People think it's sort of like a, a quick, easy stunt that they can pull to to get that attention and don't really think about what you pointed out, Paul, which is that it's sort of demeaning, especially when it's phrased this way and and this is like blatantly saying this is the most important so by so by extension that of course means that the actual march for our lives is not as important also i'll say this doesn't really make that much sense either because as far as i know andy you were at the vegan street fair there was no marching nor is this talking about our lives it's not talking about humans so it's just almost like like there wasn't even any thought into it. It's like, oh, this is the hot trend of social movements right now. Like, let me literally just latch onto that and use that name, regardless of whether or not it makes any sense to do so. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that until you mentioned it, that March for Our Lives is about sort of people advocating for themselves or, or ourselves or our nation, whereas veganism is about being an ally towards an oppressed group, which in this case is the animals. And I, and I get this. I get this sentiment that's being expressed here because it can feel empowering, this idea of no legislation, no waiting period, no presidents required. And I have definitely have used wording like that in my activism when I talk to people that's kind of like, here's something that you can immediately start doing right now. Like you can you can start to be on the right side of history and stop exploiting animals with your next meal, with your next shoe purchase not to get too capitalistic on it or anything you know but like like you you have the power this is something that you personally can do and if you do it and you get your friends to do it and they get their friends to do it like something will actually happen here 
so I get that. It feels very empowering to to think that we have that sort of control and we don't have to wait for someone to pass a law about it. But it feels like there's ways that you can get that sort of empowering message out there that doesn't involve co-opting another movement. Yeah, because the the way that this is phrased, like, I agree with you, Andy, that that's what this person was trying to get across. Like, you don't need, you can do this, you can do this right now, and that's all you need. But in the context of this quote, when they say no legislation, no waiting period, no presence required, to me, I'm reading that as like, again, it's it's another instance of I feel like they're demeaning this other cause. It's almost as if like, oh, anything that required, anything that requires all these things, legislation, waiting period, something to do with the president, like isn't worth, isn't worth fighting for. Yeah. And... I don't know. Again, the whole the whole I think I'm reading it like that because to me, the whole tone of it is just very condescending. Yeah. And I think like waiting period, that's obviously a term associated with gun use as well. So, yeah, it's it's almost. Yeah, I get that. I, I think that it is almost saying that why would we deal with something that needed legislation or a waiting period or a president to sign a bill like we can just go do this thing. And it's and and this is the most important thing for us to do anyway. So why would we even deal with these things that have all these other hurdles and obstacles in our path? And and because, like you just said, Andy, waiting period is something that right now is very politically tied to like the gun debate. Like I almost feel like this person is saying that issue is not important. If it certainly feels like that, and you know. Uh, this post drew some attention and people sort of brought that up that it, it one that it feels like it's demeaning the March for our lives and that the March for our lives is an important issue that's happening right now. And the author is kind of co-opting that and, and that like veganism would not solve this problem, you know, because the, this, this post starts out by saying it's the most important, immediately effective and furthest reaching and so it's sort of saying that, like, well, what we need to do is go vegan instead. And people pointed out going vegan wouldn't stop a school shooting from happening. You know, like veganism would affect a wide range of issues in some ways more more comprehensively than others. But there are some things where, like, everyone going vegan is not necessarily going to fix. And, and people pointed that out. And so this was the author's response to, to people bringing that up. I argue in all my lectures that the transformative power of veganism, especially as I've seen it work in kids, is that it serves as an initiation into the community, teaches interconnectedness and responsibility to the, quote, tribe. A kid with this upbringing is less likely to cause harm to others and rather to think critically. That's how I see it related to gun violence. It transforms the mind and behavior. There's less need for pharmaceuticals, which have a huge part in all this violence. And I believe that a cultural overhaul in this direction, as far off as it may be at this moment, would change everything, including racism, police brutality. We go from a culture of death to a culture of life. Uh, so there's a lot to unpack there, for sure. Mm-hmm. I guess the first thing that 
let's talk about that that first part that sort of a, a kid that grows up vegan is not going to do all these horrible things. I, I guess that means be racist or sexist or transphobic or not going to do a school shooting, not going to become a cop that would, would shoot an unarmed black man, whatever that might be. And I feel like this is something we see all the time, specifically from folks like like Gary Yarofsky. You know, we've talked about his, his statements regarding this on the show before that this idea that, like, well, if everyone goes vegan, that's like the true root of all oppression. And if you go vegan, if you wouldn't harm an ant, then how could you possibly harm another human being? But we see that disproven time and time again with really horrible vegans or, or vegans that act really horribly as exemplified by people like Gary Yarofsky. <laughs> you know, it's like we do we not think that there aren't vegan murderers and, and rapists and child molesters? You know, and those are, of course, extreme examples, but we see examples of vegans that are very sort of casually racist, low-key racist, like constantly. You know, we see major organizations that represent our movement to the outside world that engage in tactics that reinforce sexism and racism and all of these things. So so how can anyone possibly say that if the world went vegan, these things wouldn't exist anymore? Yeah. Yeah, that's like what half of our show is dedicated to. It's, it's yeah. talking about <laughs> talking about vegans that are doing these things. Yeah, like shining a light on those things and hoping to help other people start to identify them so that we can call them out in our communities and hopefully, you know, change for the better. And I don't know, it just it strikes me as such a privileged position to take to think that that this one thing will solve every problem, especially to the point where it leads you to say and this veganism is way more important than this thing. And obviously, Paul, you and I both think veganism is immensely important. We've, we highly value animal liberation. But when it it's used as a way to demean these other very important movements, it seems like a huge problem to me. And when it's when it's used to say like, no, your your community that's being affected by these things, you're going about the wrong way to solve these things. What you really should be doing is just going vegan. And that's, that's your answer on how to solve all your problems. Yeah. And I think, I believe it was PETA that put up a billboard in Detroit that was essentially saying the same thing. The the implication was something along the lines of if, you know, if you want to cut down on the gun violence that's happening here, just go vegan. You know, it's it's like this. Yeah. It's, it's just not a good, not a good look and (laughs) not true either. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 like I get it again because yeah for me going vegan is the thing that helped me to start to really reexamine a lot of the, my other deeply held values and beliefs and it it did help me sort of look at those things from a different angle so I, so I get when people say that but that's not going to happen for everyone and I obviously still as a human being have tons of work to do it didn't just make me magically change all of my views and all these things and it's it's a process and it will continue to be a process for me you know so it just it just rings rings false to promote it as such I think especially when the veganism that is promoted by mainstream you know vegan advocates most of the time is devoid of political messaging it's just eat plants and everything's cool. You don't have to change who you are at all. Just eat plants and everything's fine. And I, I also think that, like you said, Andy, a lot of, there are many vegans who went vegan and then examined other issues, not related to, not necessarily related to veganism afterwards, but I bet you the same goes the other way too. I, I, I feel like there are probably a lot of people that 
started investigating feminism or anti-racism, that became their thing. And then through that, they somehow got exposed to veganism. I think that I have a feeling based on no evidence whatsoever that, <laughs> that, you know, if, if you are inclined to, to be invested in one social issue, I bet there is a correlation that you are more likely to be open to other social issues. I, I don't think that that's necessarily true for everybody. I know that that's not necessarily true for everybody. We can see that in the vegan movement, but I bet you that there's some, that there's some correlation that you're more open to these other issues. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that's why you see people that are involved in certain movements also making effort to, you know, address racism within their movement or, you know, like, I think that there's, there probably is some correlation, but it's, it's obviously not an automatic thing. Yeah. Yeah. It is not an automatic thing, which is why that argument that this person is trying to make this author does not hold up. Yeah, definitely. In in our humble opinion. (laughs) It's a fact, Paul. (laughs) Now, I wonder if they would say, well, I'm talking about a, a child being brought up as a vegan Whereas, like, an adult that goes vegan sort of already has all this other baggage. I wonder if that would maybe perhaps be the rebuttal. But, but again, I think that child would still be going through life navigating a very sort of racist and sexist world. And they still would have a lot of that baggage, especially if, you know, their, their parents are preaching this sort of colorblind racism or this, hey, we're vegan, so everything's cool now kind of mentality. Yeah, if anything, that, that kid that grows up vegan is going to grow up the same way that they would if they weren't vegan, except now they're probably going to get teased for being vegan in elementary school. <laughs> Perhaps. I, mean, I think there's probably more differences than that, but <laughs> you know, you, you never know. You never know how a child's going to turn out. You never know if they're going to stay vegan. You never know if they're going to want to rebel against their parents and if they're going to adopt their, their ethics and their, you know, morals and whatnot. But I don't know. Rebel against their parents, buy a van, drive across the country. (laughs) This is not a matter of rebellion, Paul. (laughs) This is a livelihood. (laughs) This is a lifestyle, man. (laughs) So I guess a few other things I did want to bring up in this statement was that it transforms the mind and behavior. There's less need for pharmaceuticals, which have a huge part in all this violence. So it's, it's sort of putting out this idea that you know, veganism is your pharmacy, you know, let food be thy medicine. And I know it says less need. So it's not saying there'll be no need, but it's sort of reinforcing this idea that, that veganism is this, this cure all and that it it will like get, get us off of a lot of these pharmaceuticals and then makes the jump to say all these pharmaceuticals are the reason for these school shootings, which I don't think there's really any evidence to back that up whatsoever, but yeah, that seems Maybe. like a strange jump to make. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. This whole thing is just it's, it's really disappointing. And I wanted to bring it up on the show because I think that some people might might see this and not realize what the underlying problems are with it. And with sort of that attitude that veganism fix everything, including racism and sexism. And and obviously there are plenty of amazing people that are doing the work and sort of connecting those things and, and talking about how they reinforce each other. But I think that this was just sort of a really lazy way to do it and a cheap way to do it. And as you said, Paul, a really demeaning way to do it. So I I, personally, I can't imagine someone that's like really involved with March for Our Lives seeing this and thinking, oh, you know what? I should go vegan. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. It, I, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for bringing this to my attention, Andy. <sighs> All right. Well, let's let's bring it on home with this final little bit of news. I thought this was pretty interesting to come across. And so this article is from alternate.org. It came out on March 23rd, 2018. It says, U.S. ranked as second worst nation in the world on new animal cruelty index. Yeah. Really, really doing pretty bad on this index here. So uh, let's, let's figure out what this index is all about. The United States has ranked as the second worst country for animal cruelty, according to the new Voiceless Animal Cruelty Index, or V-A-C-I, VACI? Vacky. Vacky. Wacky Vacky. <laughs> which evaluates and ranks 50 countries based on the welfare of farmed animals. It is placed 49th out of 50 countries and labeled, quote, extremely poor. These 50 countries account for 80% of the world's farmed animal population. So this isn't the only index of this kind. Um, several years ago, the U.S. was ranked 31st out of 50 by another index, the API, which was created by World Animal Protection. WAP. WAP. Um, the <laughs> Sorry. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> the massive drop in ranking is accounted for by the different focus. Rather than looking at the quality of animal welfare legislation, the VACI measures cruelty to farmed animals. So we'll put a link specifically to the Voiceless Animal Cruelty Index page on our show notes for you to look at it more extensively. It's actually a pretty interesting interactive graph because it, it takes into account three different criteria, which we'll go over in a second. And then there, and there's an option to sort of look at it with all of those criteria melded together, or then you can click through each criteria and it changes sort of, it's like a bar graph, essentially. It, it changes the amount based on the specific criteria. So the API, which was created by World Animal Protection, was just, as I said, it was just looking at what sort of laws are in place to protect animals. And that is how it was gauging things. What I really like about this specific one is its criteria. So so let's go over it because I think that this is, to me, more comprehensive than the API. But on their website, they say this is, this is mean, meant to complement the API, not be like a replacement for it. But uh, the first piece of criteria is producing cruelty, which is defined as uh, it ranks countries based on the number of farm animals slaughtered for food each year on a per capita basis taking account of the fact that animals are treated and protected differently in each country. So this is just like the amount of animals killed per person in that country. And then there is, and in that one, the U.S. ranks 49th. And then there's consuming cruelty, which ranks countries based on their consumption of farmed animals by looking at the ratio of plant-based protein to farm animal protein consumed and the number of animals consumed in each country on a per capita basis. And the U.S. moves up a little bit, ranks 41st in that. And then there is sanctioning cruelty, which is kind of what the API was measuring, which ranks countries based on their societal and cultural attitudes to animals as reflected in the quality of the regulatory frameworks that are in place to protect animals. And in that one, the U.S. actually ranks eighth. So it gives us a pretty hmm. good rating in terms of our, our legislation. So even better than the API, which is kind of interesting. So just looking at the results a little bit, the company that we are in down at the bottom, uh, leading from from top to bottom in the worst, we have Australia, Canada, Iran, Russia, Venezuela, USA, and then Belarus. And up at the very top is 
leading, reading bottom to top. Switzerland, Nigeria, Philippines, the United Republic of Tanzania, India, and Kenya. So Kenya is number one right there. Uh, China's right in the middle, pretty much at uh, 31. So, I don't know, Paul, this is kind of interesting because... I love that it was it wasn't just looking at this from a, a cruelty perspective or like the legislative perspective or the laws that are in place but it also sort of says cruelty is included in the amount of animals that are killed which to me translates over to to like people that are looking at this are saying just the fact that an animal is killed period increases the amount of cruelty that's happening within a country which I thought was pretty interesting uh, yeah. wh- what did you think when you were looking at all these numbers so I actually well, – well, I agree with you that it is interesting that – and I think it's a good thing that they're, they're basically defining cruelty as the use of the animal, which I think is something that you don't see a lot when you talk about animal cruelty. When, when we think about animal cruelty as it applies to something uh, – as it, as it applies to an animal like a cow or a chicken, we usually think about it. As or it's usually seen in terms of the law as like excessive, something that's excessively brutal and not just being raised and killed and then fed to another human, <laughs> which is pretty fucking brutal, which is which is. But but what my, my point is, is that that's not really our in the U.S. That's not really our what our how our culture, how the society would define animal cruelty if it was applied to maybe a to a dog or a cat for the u.s then yes that would be that would be deemed animal cruelty so on one hand i think it's a good thing that they are that they are choosing to define cruelty in that way i i guess the one thing that i worry about is that is how non-vegans would read this because if they are like the rest of us. They'll maybe just read the headline and then make inferences off of that. And I think that would almost be better because if when you read U.S. ranked as second worst nation in the world on new animal cruelty index, I think a lot of non-vegans would be surprised to see that. I think that a lot of non-vegans probably think that we we treat our animals great. But if they delved into it, I think that they wouldn't have as much of a problem with this because if you are okay with eating an animal, then you're probably okay with eating multiple animals. And the reason that the U.S. really ranks so lowly is just because we are eating – we are raising and eating so many animals. Like that's the reason that we're so low. So I worry that that's not going to really have any impact on how a non-vegan would think. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that is a good point, Paul. Uh, I guess we sort of have to weigh out how many people are actually going to look into this. How you know, like, well, if we just post this on our Facebook and be like, "Wow, look, we're doing pretty horribly over here," would would people look into it or would they not? And we could we could put one extra letter in the link so that it's a broken link so that they're never able to read the actual article <laughs> and they only get the headline. There you go. But. But I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I like I do think that this is important, though, because there needs to be that shift of how we perceive what animal cruelty is. And if it's something that involves 
raising the animal solely for the purpose of killing it and eating it, then yes, I do think that that should be defined as cruel. So on one hand, I do think that this is an important measure in at least starting to shift that cultural image of what cruelty is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I definitely think that this is a good step in that direction. I think that, I mean, even if people do look into this, Yes, they might be okay with eating animals, but it might have them reconsider the weight of killing an animal. You know, if if like this index takes into account the amount of animals that are being raised and killed for food and the amount of animals per person that are being consumed, I don't know. I think that people might say, "Oh, I guess there's more weight to that than I thought there was." And that even even though our animals are treated better than, you know, the other the 42 countries below us, you know, it still means we're like a really horrifically cruel country because of the extent that we put these animals through what we do. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess I worry that I worry that non-vegans would dismiss this. For instance, they'd see like, Oh, well, India got ranked second best, but that's just because there's so many people in India. That's just because it's such a populated place. And that's like, that's, that's why they're ranking so well in this is because they just they don't have as not only do they not have as much meat which is they're not eating as many animals which is good for for vegans but there's just so many more people that like that's what pushes them to get a higher ranking yeah yeah that's possible but i also think that this could be used in a way that you know, whenever people talk about how, how, how brutal and barbaric the Chinese dog meat trade is, you know, that we could say, well, actually, look at this. We rank, they rank like almost 20 spots above us in this cruelty rating, you know, because people say, well, like, you know, it's no different than a dog or a cat, but the way they do it is so much worse and all this stuff. And it's like, well, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. But that's not what this is measuring. And that's what I that's what I worry about. Is people exploiting that? I guess I feel like it could knock people down a peg if 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 they start talking about how barbaric, you know, which is obviously a very loaded sort of coded term, loaded and coded, loaded it, and coded. It, I feel like it is the kind of thing that we could be like, we're listen, we're not as advanced as we think that we are, and we're not that much better. You know, we're not so much better than all these other countries that we like to portray ourselves as this like uber civilized country, and, and we're not. Look how horribly we treat animals. Like we treat them as this commodity and that we can just raise, you know, billions of them and it doesn't matter. Yeah, I I guess I can just in my mind, like it's not that I don't agree with you, Andy. It's just in my mind, I'm visualizing what you just said as like the response on the Facebook post or whatever. And then the response to that would be the non-vegan saying, well, I just looked through this article and, and the reason that we rank so low is just because we eat more animals, yeah. not because of how we treat them. Not because of quote how we treat them. You're you're not wrong, Paul. <laughs> but but, you know, and and part of me is like, well, I can probably bank on the fact that most people aren't going to delve that deeply into it. Yeah. But I feel like that's dishonest. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I think that that's where where like actual human beings have to come in to have that conversation. To let them know that like just the use of an animal alone is cruel. And that's why those things are weighed so heavily. I think it's important for us to be there to explain those things. Yeah. And I, I do like, I think that that conversation 
combined with this data could be very, very, very impactful. I don't know if impactful is a word, but it, you know what I mean. I'm pretty sure it is. Okay, good. <laughs> but like, I, I, I do think that if you can get people to just see killing animals as cruel, then, then yes, this I think would be very alarming to them. And I will say this, I do think that there are some non-vegans currently who would look at this and be like, wow, we're messing up real bad. We need to change. Like, I do think that there are some non-vegans. I guess in my mind, I'm picturing the the real stubborn non-vegans that are going to try to find every way to, like, poke a hole in your argument. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think I also because we associate cruelty with, as you said, sort of that, that excessive brutality that people might see this and just go, we need better laws. Like if they don't look into it, they're like, oh, we're not doing, we don't have nearly as good laws as Kenya and India and the Republic of Tanzania have. That might be the conclusion that they make, not that we need to eat no animals or less animals. Yeah. So there, there is that danger as well. Do you think that we were at number nine and then the author saw the baloney ban and was like, whoop. Bump him up to number eight. Well, the baloney man hasn't passed yet, Paul. <laughs> That's true. They're, That's true. They're, uh, <laughs> they're UK cir- circusing it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think the only other thing that I kind of wanted to point out about this is there is a little about section on the, the VACI page. And it sort of just gives a rundown of like the issues. and it, But it says the problem and then the problem is factory farming. So again, <laughs> no. my, my same my, my same problem with the Greenpeace video. And I think it makes sense from a Greenpeace perspective that they would use that messaging. But this, it's kind of like the problem is eating animals, period. Like every animal consumed, regardless of it's a factory farm or a, a small, you know, like local operation. It's still adding one animal count to this thing, and the more animals that are added to that count, the the worse our country's ranking is. That is very interesting to me that 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 is included on the website. The problem is factory farming because I feel like by them including the number of animals being raised for food and the number of the ratio of animal protein. I feel like that's them, like we've just been talking about this whole time, that's them putting forward the idea that any number of animals that are being eaten is cruel and bad. Like, I feel like that's the idea that they're putting forward. But then to say, like, oh, but the real problem is factory farming, I feel like that almost implies, like, oh, it's okay if, even by our standards, it's okay if you're some cruel like you don't ever need to be no cruel. You can be some. You can be diet cruel, <laughs> and that's okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It, it's I, honestly, I feel like a lot of people just use that term very indiscriminately. Like I think a lot of people think that it's interchangeable with animal agriculture. Period. And and factory farming is a thing that that is vilified and something that. Most people don't like factory farming, even if they do support it monetarily. You know, kind of like most people, like, I don't like sweatshops, but I still purchase clothes that are made in them kind of thing. You know, yeah. so, so I think that maybe people just sort of use that term, like factory farming, as like sort of this, this catch-all for, for animal agriculture. So, I don't know, maybe it's that, or maybe they, I don't know, it, it feels like this is 
supposed to be like a vegan thing, but I, I don't know. I don't know if this is done by vegans or not. Yeah. yeah. The fact that they include voiceless as is in their acronym makes me think that it's a vegan thing because that's, you know, a term commonly used by vegans. And, you know, we can have a whole conversation about the issues with with saying that animals are voiceless. I don't I don't believe that they are voiceless. I think that they have a voice and they make it very clear what their wants and needs are. And humans just don't listen to them. But that's just me. That's just me. Maybe I'm old-fashioned, Paul. <laughs> You're like that Kermit the Frog meme. <laughs> but that's not my business. <laughs> we should have a whole... I feel like that should be a main discussion sometime. Because I have some things to say about that, too. Yeah, definitely. I got some feelings. Yeah, well, let's let's put a pin in that one, then. Save it for another right, episode. Right. Well, I think those are all the, the thoughts that I have on this particular index. And I think with that, it's going to wrap up today's news roundup. And we would, of course, love to know what all you beautiful beardos think about the stories that we covered today. And if you have any that you want to send to us for future coverage consideration, just send it to thebeardvegans at gmail.com. We we love hearing from you. And we're trying to get back to everyone that sent us an email. Some people are starting to get responses from things they sent like last year. And it's just like, <laughs> hey, I know you asked us what our favorite vegan cheese was a year ago. And now we're finally responding. But we'll, we'll get to you eventually. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. So send us an email. And of course, if you want to support the podcast, just go to thebeardvegans.com slash beardo. And if you're feeling nice, leave us that iTunes rate and review. Yeah. Check us out on the Facebook where you can participate in the discussions. Check us out on the Instagram where you can see all of mostly Andy's delicious picks and occasionally my mediocre food picks. <laughs> Make sure to check out Paul's personal Instagram for all his delicious tofu recipes. Yep. You got to do research to figure it out, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably tagged in some of our pictures oh it's been tagged a few times so yeah this the savvy beardo should be able to find you pretty easily <laughs> so andy what do you got coming up this weekend now that the andy veg fest has finally passed us i will be at the nashville veg fest nashville tennessee that's gonna be april 7th you're gonna have that that good nashville hot shrooms <laughs> i can't because those are in san diego Ah, oh, rats. <laughs> I caught a case of the Nashville hot shrooms. <laughs> uh, April 14th, I'll be at the Wilmington Veg Fest in Wilmington, North Carolina. April 29th, I'll be at the Veg Fest Michigan in Novi, Michigan. And May 5th, I'll be at the Cleveland Veg Fest, Cleveland, Ohio. All of those events, I will be behind the Compassion Company table. So come find me, say hi, say what's up, Beardo, hook you up with a button and a sticker. And uh, I won't personally be there, but I'll have some some people representing Compassion Company at the New Hampshire Veg Fest, which is April 14th, Manchester, New Hampshire, and April 29th at the New England Veg Fest in Worcester, Mass. And actually, Paul, this this reminds me, you're going to be doing something yeah, this coming weekend was, as well. I was about to say that, Andy. You forgot about you forgot about little old me. I'll be I will be behind the Compassion Co. table at the Veggie Pride Parade in New York City. Yeah. So so come say hi to. Oh. And that's April 8th, this Saturday. <laughs> I, should, I should probably tell people when that is. Uh, Paul, all of this baloney talk has me thinking about a song from my childhood. Mm-hmm. It goes like <laughs> this. <laughs> my baloney has a first name. It's the following seven words. <laughs> <laughs> we are the Bearded Vegans, signing off.
but before before I leave LA, I gotta. No, what am I doing? What am I doing, Paul, with my <laughs> life? Amateur statistician. <clears throat> Amateur statistician. God, that that is a hard word to say. <laughs> any any inclinations there, Paul? I think we lost our connection. Animal Defenders International, or the ADI. Someone fighting with a lightsaber out there? <laughs> so fast forward to March 6th. So fast forward to March 6th. Si- Why can't I say that? So Matt, so... <laughs> Revenge of the 6th. So fast forward t- 10 days to... March 19th. No, I can do math. Councilman Cabrera said, oh man, I never introduced that character, that character, that person. (laughs) This administration is committed to providing all our students with free, healthy, and nutritious, no commas. This administration is, this, this administration. And yeah. I don't know. I thought I had something to say. <laughs> I was thinking of what our final outro is going to be. I think I got a good one. But okay. um, I was I was thinking about how there's definitely a ska song that has to do with baloney. <laughs> it's got to be. It's got to be. <laughs> <laughs>